Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, listeners. I'm Ivana Andrade, and today I'm in the studio with Thora Arnaustotir. Thora made international headlines for her 2012 run for the presidency in Iceland. She lost the race by a sliver, but she continues her work as a national media personality and documentary film producer. She is both a journalist and a senior news editor at the Icelandic Broadcasting Service and hosts the country's most popular TV quiz show. Thora also lectures at the University of Iceland on international relations. Right now, she is here at Yale as a Yale World Fellow. Thank you, Thora, so much for being here with us in the studio. It's, it's a pleasure. Thora, when you announced your candidacy, you were 37 and eight months pregnant with your third child. Can you tell us a few things you found most surprising about the domestic and international response to this? Yes, so my candidacy was kind of ad hoc. I got a lot of encouragement and phone calls, letters, emails, messages from people that um, both from people that I know and that I don't know, but what was most important was people that I trusted and and uh, respect. And I think the the small sentence that actually made me uh, jump and decide to do this, of course, after you know a family meeting, was that people in general regret more what they didn't do but what they do. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, I mean, I am a feminist, which I think most people actually are, because it's just about wanting uh, the world to be equal for uh, both and all gender. So um, it was very interesting to follow the discussion and debate. At first, it was very... You might say very positive because Iceland is on the top of the list of the gender equality measurement list. And um, people would say, isn't this great in our country? A pregnant woman can actually run for president. But then you start to hear the other side of it. The how is she going to be able to do it uh, with a family? This job is too tough for a woman that has a lot on her plate, etc. And I noticed, especially internationally, the international media was very interested. That surprised me. And uh, they would interview me, follow me on the campaign trail, but they would always <clears throat> pull my husband aside and ask him, are you really okay with this? What are you going to do? What about your career? Uh, who's going to take care of the kids? And he was very firm on this. It is my right to choose to support my wife in this really important journey. And I know how to change a diaper. I mean, <laughs> he has six children. <laughs> so um, that response was internationally the strongest one. Domestically, because... Um, people know that it's more politically incorrect to actually criticize a pregnant woman. <laughs> it would be more the murmur. You would see the internet blog comments. Um, 
which is in fact more difficult to respond to because they, no one is saying it to your face. I mean, I hear of young women that would say, I'm not going to vote for her for the sake of her children. Uh, but people wouldn't say that directly to me, so it's more difficult to address it. But all in all, I think it was a very good experiment and experience for the nation to kind of face the status we're in. We're not, we have not reached gender equality. We're not just sitting back you know, watching the world saying, oh, now we'll just wait until they catch up with us. Uh, we still have a lot of, of work to do with our mindset. Uh, and of course, I mean, if people didn't want to vote for me because I was young or for some other reasons, that's okay. But because I, I'm a family person, that's not really a reason. I have never heard anyone ask David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the UK, how he was going to do it when he had a child, you know, in, in Downing Street 10. How did you deal with, you said it was difficult to, to deal with some of these murmurings. How did you try to do that when you ran? By addressing it generally in my speeches. But here's the thing. It's, it was also important for me not to have this, the focus of the campaign. Uh, the focus of the campaign was the presidency, where I wanted to take that, what I wanted to do in office, not how to cope with family life. Of course, I would talk about the importance of... Um, it's, it's all a question of choice. Uh, I'm not saying that every woman should be prepared to do this, but it's every woman's right to choose to do so. If you want to be a stay-at-home mom and you actually can do it, that's wonderful. It's great. It's just about having the choice to do that. So I would try to address it in a, in a general way. But um, like I said, it, it could be difficult to not to make that the main focus. You ran on a non-partisan platform. How did this shape how you addressed environmental issues in Iceland? Well, that's also one thing I want to be clear about. The, the president of Iceland uh, has not the same power as the president of the United States. It's a different system. The president is um, the uh, head of state. He has veto power on laws if he vetoes a law it means they, it goes to a referendum. It's, it doesn't happen very often. It's very rare. So he's more, what, what I wanted to do was to get my people to look more ahead. We had an economic crash in 2008, which is like a, a historic milestone. We talk about before and after. Ah, uh, that was sometimes before the crash. I think that was right after the crash. I mean, it's just a, a very, very... It's like a war, you might say, like people talk about before and after the Second World War. So um, environmental issues are vital to Iceland. Um, I mean, it is renowned, renowned for its natural beauty. It's... That's why we get most of the tourists that come to visit our country. And we also 
uh, our main source of income is uh, from national natural resources. It's vital that we keep our country both clean and healthy and uh, like the livestock that they're fished in a in a responsible and, and sustainable way. Uh, but being nonpartisan, that's actually the norm. It's it's very so. He's the the Icelandic people wants to elect its president uh, based on the person, not a party. So the parties have been very careful with uh, putting forward candidates, and history has shown us that they get rejected. So um, it was never a question for me to run on a, a political ticket or not. It, I, it was always going to be uh, nonpartisan. You mentioned this this uh, financial crash. Uh, three of Iceland's commercial banks crashed in 2008. And since then, the country has been an example to other developed countries on how to get out of similar messes. Um, a more democratic attempt also at rewriting the constitution has since emerged, along with a democratic, excuse me, a direct democracy platform uh, that has emerged in Reykjavik. How do you think these recent events have shaped the debate over Iceland's natural resources? It's shaped the debate on everything, actually. Um, what happened after the, the crash in terms of direct democracy and all kind of experiments on, in that field is very interesting. Uh, for example, there was a random group of 1,000 Icelanders, and we are only 326,000, like you mentioned, and they had this big conference talking about values. Honesty came out on top. Uh, where they wanted the country to go uh, and when something crumbles down like our economy did in 2008 yes you can be very angry about it and you want to know why it happened but there is also an opportunity in the rebuilding so I saw this for example as a, as a very interesting way to engage people that have maybe not been paying too much attention to just our social pact. How do we want our society to be? Uh, which values do we want to teach our children? Because to tell you the truth, Icelanders have, through the ages, looked upon themselves as a hardworking, honest people, you know, with a mixture of megalomania and minority complex, um, creative, a, a, a tad crazy, if you if you want to say that. But... Definitely uh, good people. Uh, we kind of lost our way in this decade leading up to the crash where greed and short-term sight and arrogance prevailed. And these years that have passed since then, I wish we would have used them better actually to kind of get our course straight again. Um, <clears throat> but of course it's difficult when you have a very angry of course people were angry 
they wanted to know, I mean, how could you let this happen? And how are you going to get us out of this? And you say Iceland is an exemplar of how to get out of such a mess. Um, it was a very difficult task for the new government <clears throat> from 2009 to 2013. It was a lot of, I mean, nobody wants to be in government when you have to do major cuts in health, in education, in everything that the government does. At times where people are actually losing a lot and need more support. So it was very difficult. And um, th that government, left-wing government, our first totally left government, uh, that was there from 2009 to 2013, they lost big time in the elections last year. Now we have a centre-right government. Uh, the growth has been decent. And I must say that when I think of 2008, I did not expect our country to be in such a good shape in 2014. However, it is very volatile. I mean, we have capital controls. If I am going abroad, I go to the bank and I show them my air ticket and there's a limit to how much foreign currency I can buy. This is like going back to the Eastern Bloc or to the, the, the 70s and the 80s, so um, which also can lead to a new real estate bubble, etc. It's, it's tough. But the reason, in my opinion, why it has gone well is, it, is simply because the Icelandic people they are hardworking, honest people, <laughs> like they, they like they want to think of themselves uh, to be. I mean, they just get up in the morning and they go to work, and they work very hard. We have longer hours than any of the Scandinavian nations, and um, because you mentioned natural resources, that has also been um, a fierce debate. So. The fishing industry is very important and it has actually been our biggest export industry. Uh, it, it, you know, when everybody wanted to be a banker and have, you know, high salaries and private jets and whatever, I mean, being a fisherman or, or you know, wasn't very cool, we returned a bit back to basics and realized how important that is. It's a very high-tech industry. This was since the crash. Yes, yes. It's a high-tech industry, and it's it's quite well run. I mean, we have a quota system, meaning that uh, it's not overfishing, and sophisticated market system and, and all that. Um, and so if, if we think about our natural resources, the I would say the biggest challenge now is tourism. Since 2010, you remember the eruption that was in 20, 2010, April, mm -hmm. that shut down mm -hmm. air traffic for six days in Europe? Well, apparently bad news, or better than no news, it put Iceland on the map, and tourism has doubled since then, just in four years, from 500,000 to uh, predicted more than a million this year. Wow. And this obviously puts a lot of stress on uh, our nature because, um, I mean, you must remember that we are a volcanic island just beneath the Arctic Circle. 
So the soil is, uh, you know, volcanic, very volatile. So uh, wind erosion and desertification has been a huge problem. We've been working on it for more than a century to, you know, uh, for reforestation and revegetation. But if you have a million people walking, driving off roads, because the infrastructure isn't always there. So we do not have enough rangers, we do not have enough um, just infrastructure to make sure that people follow the rules. I mean, I can tell you, because we're talking about natural resources, that there was a family, I'm not going to disclose its nationality here, that was caught red-handed with pickaxes, filling their backpacks with zeolites in a, in a natural park. And then you can ask, and the ranger? Well, there is no ranger because no one is prepared to pay for it. Everyone wants to participate in the gold rush that comes with a lot of tourists. Everyone has a guest house or an Airbnb or, you know, car rentals. But it also costs. And if we're not really firm about this and spend some money on this infrastructure, um, I'm afraid that we will go the same way as some other countries did or, or regions, you might say that became shabby and we cannot risk it. Still, every article about Iceland that is written is about its natural beauty. And it's also, I mean, because it's sparsely populated, we should be able to accommodate all those guests, but we just need them to distribute a bit more over the year and also over the country. If we don't, I mean, like the Geysir area that has more than 500,000 people coming there through every year. It's And you don't have enough um, infrastructure, um, rangers, to make sure that people do not throw money into there, that they don't break off and take with them pieces of the, of the geysers. Then, you know, we're, it's really important that we get to that point. Um, about the direct democracy the constitution um, you know after the big crash people thought it would be the right time to rewrite the constitution and so there was a, a direct election anyone could run 600 people actually ran for that and 26 were elected and they, together, I mean, normal citizens, not parliamentarians, not, I mean, just individuals, they were voted in as individuals. They rewrote the constitution. It was a very open process. You could follow everything online. Um, citizens could send in suggestions or remarks. Um, but it didn't make it through the parliament, because in the end it's always the parliament that has to decide whether to change the constitution or not. And actually two parliaments, you have to have elections between, because it should be difficult to change the constitution. And now we have a new committee working on changes of the of the constitution. So in my opinion, it was a very interesting experiment in direct democracy. The outcome was not as expect it but uh, still I think it was definitely worth it to to go through that process and see if it can be done and we'll see what happens in the in the future same goes for Reykjavik city you can um, 
online, you can send in your suggestions. If you get enough people to support it, uh, the city will actually take it into consideration. Uh, and this form of direct democracy um, uh, can actually be important uh, considering the national resources. I mean, Iceland should become the first country that is totally non-dependent on fossil fuels. And, you know, I've seen a few suggestions there at the Reykjavik website, like why aren't there more um, charging stations for uh, electrical cars? Uh, we need more of those, less gas stations. And so people are really thinking about it. It's just a question of, of the response of the authorities. Taking a, a slightly different tack on, on a similar theme, what linkages do you see between this discussion surrounding gender equality, kind of returning back to your run, and environmental conservation? I think that's a very good question because I've thought about this a lot. Why environmental issues somehow get connected to femininity? Like it's because it's a soft issue. It's like the rest. And so the um, just for to give you an example, the Ministry of Environment was founded in 1990. The first four ministers were men, but that's also because the government was almost only men. Uh, that was 90 to 99. Then for the next 14 years, six women were the ministers of environment. Now it's a man and it's been merged with, uh, with another ministry. Uh, why is that? I've th I mean, th this is, I've given this a lot of thought. Part of it is that when the important ministries, like the finance ministry, the foreign affairs, of course, the prime minister, um, when they have been distributed, you know, oh, we need some women in the government. Well, the environmental ministry, because it's... I would say through, I mean, yeah, a, a, a large period of that time, it was seen as unimportant. It was something that, like I said, like the rest, you know, well, let's just put the rest there in the environmental um, ministry. This has changed because uh, Icelanders have become much more environmentally conscious over the last few years. Um, so there is a lot more pressure on the Minister of the Environment from the citizens. And the debate has grown and flourished, whereas, I mean, it used to be that we kind of thought well, that maybe we, we didn't have to talk too much about environmental issues because everything was okay. We have clean water. Oh, the drinking water, I tell you. Whenever I go abroad, <laughs> I realize how lucky we are. <clears throat> we can drink from the creeks. There is a salmon river flowing through our capital, which is clean, and, you know, the salmon flourishes. And I, you know, going to your capital, I just think, oh, my goodness, why, why do people put up with this? And in the end, you know, the ones that can't afford it, they will buy bottled water, which is not good for the environment. So we kind of used to think that everything was fine because we have clean air and clean water. Well, now we don't have clean air because of an eruption going on, which... So this volcano emits more SO2 than the European industry, traffic, coal and oil combustion 
combined. But it's out of our hands, it's out of our control. We're sorry, Europe. And then the wind is going southeast. You know, the air does not um, respect national boundaries. So it's just floating over this cloud of pollution over Europe. But, you know, what can we do? Um, Just to give you, uh, I mean, it's 450 to 1300 pounds of SO2 per second. Incredible. So in this period, maybe the air isn't too clean, but in general, it is. But it doesn't mean that we, we, we don't have problems. In the last, I would say maybe 10, 15 years, Icelanders have just started to enjoy their country a lot more. Maybe because we're seeing ourselves more with the eyes of the foreigners, the tourists that come and are astonished, flabbergasted when they see, you know, the glaciers, the fjords, the extended lava fields, the mountains, that we've started to enjoy more ourselves. Now, we have, uh, we, we are very lucky in the sense that 99% of our electricity is produced with, you know, renew- renewable resources, hydroelectrical power and geothermal. But the question is, um, what is it used for? We have three aluminum smelters and one that produces ferrosilicate. Uh, it's one of the raw materials for steel production. And we've just reached a point. It was very important in our development to build those hydroelectrical power plants to have the aluminum fabrics because it means that we're producing something very um, valuable that then gets exported and it boosts our economy. But now we've kind of reached a point where people say, well, enough is enough. For the rest of it, we still have quite a lot of energy that we can harness. It's not going to be for this. We don't because I mean, even though the st- the pollution standards are are higher up now, are, are better. There's always going to be pollution with heavy industry. It's not pollution free. It doesn't doesn't work like that. So the new policy is to get a higher price for the green energy and to use it for something that is greener, like uh, data centers which we have a few of. I mean, Iceland is a good place to have a data center because you don't have to cool it down as much. And the energy is rather cheap. And there was just, um, there was this watershed when the biggest dam was built. It was the first time that we had this huge environmental movement saying, wait a minute, you're going into our highlands, creating a huge uh, water supply huge dam to produce electricity for an aluminum aluminum fabric or smelter and the, it was very interesting to follow this because this environmental debate had always been like on the margin those people you know what were called tree huggers you know it wasn't in the mainstream now it's it's really become mainstream and there's a very vivid debate on uh, natural resources on environmental issues we finally started recycling properly and uh, even though women have have been ministers of environment most of the leaders of the biggest uh, environmental organizations are men it's uh, it's weird how this maybe it's just coincidence um but they have grown those environmental um, organizations and they are participating more in the policy making and 
Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Yes, uh, about the women. And one other thing that has also been strange, but I think it might actually be a trend internationally, that environmental issues have tended to be connected with the left of uh, the political spectrum, which the um, conservatives have now been fighting and, and are trying to create a, a, a right-green movement because it's not a question of left and right necessarily. So um, I am optimistic about the future of this, this um, at least this debate and discussion. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to make all the right decisions, but it's very important to, to have this debate ongoing. As you mentioned earlier, Iceland is home to 326,000 people. Although its population is comparatively small, what ways do you think the country serves as an example to other countries who are dealing with similarly tough environmental and social problems? Well, I think this small population could actually be a very good thing in the sense that it might be easier to reach um, consensus on what to protect, how to protect it, what to harness, uh, and which way to go. Because this is our home, and I, I think I can say with confidence that Icelanders are very proud of their country. We do realize how important the natural resources are, including including the waterfalls, including the glaciers, include, including the landscape, something that you can't really put a price tag on, uh, as opposed to the, the uh, fishing grounds. Um, so... If everything works out the way I hope it will, we can be an example in uh, leading uh, the, like I said, we, we should be the first country to become non-dependent on fossil fuels, even though now they're talking about oil, which might be somewhere um, off Jan Mayen and inside our, um, what's called, water inside our waters. That's another story that I think we should not go into now. It's in its beginning stage. So um, Iceland has already shown with responsible fisheries that it can be done. Just imagine, I mean, Canada, that totally depleted its, its fishing stocks. Fortunately, we managed to uh, introduce a quota system, which is still being debated. Is it fair? Who should um, get the gains from it? How much should the nation uh, get from it? How should we tax it, etc.? These are, though in the end, um, minor details when you think of just the importance of preserving the, the fishing stocks. Um, so in that way, I, I've, I'm positive that Iceland can lead the way. And in the end, if the tourism continues growing like this, we also have to think about um, even limiting that, saying, well, you know what? Only so many people can go to this place at this time. 
that's a thought that is very alien to us because we're used to having so much space. We're used to being able to travel around our country freely, not paying for it. And to have someone put limits on that, it would be a big step. But the important thing is to get a consensus on preserving this. And I'm positive that we could take a lead in it. As one last question, reflecting on many of these interesting things you've, you've brought to light, what is one of your greatest sources of concern for the future of, of Iceland? And on the flip side, what is it that gives you hope for what's to come for your country? My greatest concern for the moment is brain drain. Because we have been so lucky or fortunate that a lot of people, a lot of young Icelanders, they go abroad to study, they go abroad to work, but we have had more than 90% return rate. People want to come home. Our roots are very, very deep. After the economic crash, a lot of people uh, emigrated, mostly to the Scandinavian countries, but also just wherever they could find work and a decent living. And this is my greatest concern for the time being. I'm afraid that we will lose too many highly educated individuals that we need at home to help us continue the the building up. Because when you have such a small nation, every individual counts. And if you come back with a specialization, you can be one of two, one of three people with that specialization in the country. So it's, it's... very important that we make it possible for people to come back home. Uh, My second concern is what I've mentioned earlier, the fast growth of tourism and the lagging behind of building up of infrastructure. I'm afraid that if we do not do something very soon, uh, the country is going to suffer. My hope is that when I look at the country and the population, Uh, The age pyramid is still pretty good compared to almost any other European country. We still have babies, fortunately. (laughs) Uh, I've done my fair share there. Uh, So we have young, pretty well-educated, creative, and I don't know what the right term is, powerful. We, We have a certain amount of self-confidence that has actually got us pretty far and if you come to Reykjavik you wouldn't believe that it's a city of 200,000 people it's bursting with energy there is so much going on that you know I have friends that have asked me you know if we if we you know if we're cheating on something (laughs) you know are are you sure there are only 200,000 people in the city because it, it, it's it's wonderful, and that's the strong thing. And if you consider the global problems, we have um, lots of water, clean water. We have natural resources. I mean, the just to be able to produce our own energy in a, a green, renewable way is very important. And we have... Um, uh, a, a very 
like I said, well-organized fishing industry. So the, the bases are very good. What we need is to create a society where the young people with the tech knowledge will take us to the next step forward. And I'm I'm optimistic. That's my hope that we're gonna. That's how we're gonna move on to the to the next stage. Good. Thank you, Thora, so much for for being here with us today. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you.